All right. So uh, this is the last week of Ben's epic uh, Lord's Prayer. Normal programming next week. Um, so last week, when we were talking about the Lord's Prayer, we tried to answer the question, what is Jesus praying about? What's he praying for? And as we went through it, I think what we have to recognize is that the Lord's Prayer is a dangerous prayer. It was dangerous for Jesus at the time that he prayed it. It is dangerous for us today. It was dangerous for Jesus because he's calling on another kingdom to come and reign where there was a kingdom already in place. You don't go around saying, I want a new king to come when there is a king in power and not expect In our lives today, we, we may not be under the hegemony of a Roman empire, but it's mostly our kingdoms that have to die for his to be able to reign. You see, we have the circumstance of which we are praying for his will to be done and heaven to come onto earth. And what that means is, is that his will is going to take over our lives. And that means we have to give up our own. And that is a dangerous prayer to the things that we often and the things that we pursue either on our own or through norms within our culture. It's a dangerous, dangerous prayer. This week, we need to try to answer the question, how is Jesus' prayer answered? What we walked away last week was that when Jesus prays, he expects to be heard. He's praying to the Father and has every confidence, just like we do, that he hears the prayer. And so the question is, is how was the Lord's Prayer answered? And we're going to answer that today. I'm going to give you a heads up, though, just in case you're the type of person that gets riled up about this. I'm going to, I may mess with your eschatology, with your end times stuff. Okay, so if that's the type of thing that riles you up a bit, take a breath. We'll all be fine. All right, how are Jesus' prayers answered? Um, I'm just going to give you the answers. The first one is the body of Christ. Jesus himself is an answer to the prayer that he is praying, that he's giving us to pray. And one of the things we need to understand is what is behind Jesus asking for the kingdom to come and for God's will to be done. See, Jesus and John talk about the kingdom of God as if it is something that their hearers already understand. Look at Matthew 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. You notice John doesn't expand here. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, here's what it is, so that you may get it. He's tied it to some prophecy, a promise from God. But that's about all they got. He's assuming that the people that are hearing him understand what he's talking about. We see the same thing from Jesus. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in Matthew 4. Jesus uses the exact same phrase and does the exact same thing. No detail. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. You should have a reaction to that. Okay? This follows, in Matthew chapter 4, another prophecy about how the, the word will be spread to, uh, to Zebulun and Naphtali. It's still tied to an Old, Old Testament promise. Also in Matthew 4, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Gospel of the kingdom. The good news. See, one thing to notice in all these texts is when the Bible is describing good news, it is almost always the kingdom. Luke 4, starting in verse 42, says, And when it was day, this is Jesus, departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Also in Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. The good news is almost always about the kingdom. 
Can we say, you guys have been, if you've been in church long enough, like this isn't a surprise. When we say gospel, so the underlying Greek word is euangelion, and it means good news. But most of the time, when we say that we've shared the gospel, what we tend to mean is that we've John 3.16 the guy. Like we found him and made sure that he knew that he was in trouble and that life was offered. Okay? We offer salvation. That's what we want people to hear. But, but notice that Jesus is offering a kingdom. It doesn't mean that salvation isn't part of that. We sell the story short. We give them the little tidbit that gets them to say yes to something. And then they, they get to the foot of the cross. And they get to the, the foot of the throne of Christ. And, and he says, well, he's asking something. And he's asking me to give up some things. And he's asking to actually let the king be the king. And then we're surprised. And we're disoriented. And we're disenfranchised. So we've got to tell them the whole story. We have to tell them the whole story. Jesus is offering a kingdom. We can't be in the business of just offering a salvation. But so far, John and Jesus still haven't helped us out here. We need to understand what the kingdom is. So let's see if we can answer that. It is a misunderstanding to consider the kingdom a specific place and time, a specific event or a physical place. That's our world stuff, right? Guy in castle lives in X place for X amount of time, kingdom. Okay? Matthew's summary Excuse me, the term kingdom of, when we talk, when you hear me say kingdom, uh, the Bible uses interchangeably, it could be kingdom of God, kingdom of Jesus, kingdom of heaven, is more of a marker. Okay? It's a way of referring to the fact that our understanding of how God interacts with the world is shifting. Matthew's summary of John and Jesus' declaration, the kingdom of heaven has arrived, might be said as God's promised reign is beginning, or God is now taking control. The concept of God reigning is not a new one. I mean, it, that's throughout the God's story that we find in the Old Testament. He is, he is a God that controls. He creates the world. He steps into humanity when he wishes to so that certain things of his can be done. When, when the people of Israel were taken into exile because of their relationship with God, God put that into motion. He made it happen. He will step in, into society. But alongside that unquestioned understanding of sovereignty, there developed a sense that all was not as God would have it be in the world. And with that, time to come when God would be more fully and openly implemented and acknowledged among the people of the earth. The prophet Zechariah, where most of the prophets at the tail end of the Old Testament uh, are, are pretty much laying into the people of Israel and how they were destroying themselves and separating themselves from God, the tone of Zechariah is, is more pointed to God's ultimate victory. Now, Zechariah, uh, this is just like Daniel in Revelation, tends to express himself very symbolically. Okay, uh, but he's in chapter 14 and he's describing a time when basically God steps in and starts redirecting things. It says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be the one and his name one. So that seems to imply that that's not true at the time that he's saying it. It's something that will be something that is to come. There must be something else that needs to change. It needs to shift to put things right where, where God wants it to be. We see the same thing expressed in Daniel 7. We're going to come back to this one because this is, tends to be our, uh, our end times problem with Daniel 7. But Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, when Jesus was claiming this kingdom is at hand, what he was bringing, this notion of what was happening would not have been lost on the people that were hearing it. Not on the Pharisees. You see, 
they're thinking, if this is our Daniel 7 guy, this is the big kingdom shift of everything guy, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he not? He's supposed to be washing his hands like we wash our hands and he's not doing that. How, how can this be the guy? He doesn't show us the respect that we think we deserve. This can't be our Daniel 7 guy. And what the rest of these people that are following Jesus are looking for. They said, this is the Daniel 7 guy. We're being, we're being kept under thumb of Rome by heavy taxes and sometimes violence. Where's this Daniel 7 guy that's going to change the circumstance for us? And most of them expected a physical, earthly kingdom. You see John the Baptist when he's in prison. He hears about all these things that Jesus is doing. And he's not seeing movement on a physical kingdom. And he sends his guys to say, hey, are you really the guy? Because I don't see any violence here. I don't see any kick and tail. I expected things to change. And they're not changing. Even John the Baptist says, are you really the guy? That's what was built up in this expectation of of heaven. Mark 1543, um, it gives you this short description of Joseph of Arimathea. He was the guy that um, picked up Jesus' body after he'd been crucified. And notice how a respected member of the council, also himself looking for the kingdom of God. It was an expectation. It was going to happen. They understood what Jesus was bringing. So as part of this conversation, Jesus is praying and saying, this, this kingdom come, what can we expect out of it? And the thing is, it had to come because things needed to be put right. Things were not as God would have had it be. When he created the world and he looked down and he said, this is good, it didn't stay that way. You can look out at the time that Zechariah is talking or Daniel is talking or, or at the time that Jesus is there and he says, look, this has the presence of sin which is not what I created it to be. And with that sin, it introduced the reality of death and ultimately the fear of death. And then the reign of Satan. See, these things, I didn't look out and say this was good. These things need to be put, put right. We need to understand clearly that it was Jesus alone who could put these things to rights. He was the demonstration of and the very fact that God is now taking control. Jesus deals with all these things. It's through his sacrifice that these are eliminated. Let's look at sin. Paul was a, was a, a Jew who was in the boat of Jesus is blasphemous. He's leading people astray. This can't be our Daniel 7 kingdom guy. Jesus dies. He, Paul runs into him in a vision and changes everything about what Paul believes. And he's writing a letter to the Christians in Rome to encourage them. And here's what he says. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to set it right, to put sin right to what it should be. To the wages of sin or death, we separated ourselves from God with the sin and we have no way to put that back together. And God says, I'm stepping back in and we're putting those things right. No man could have done this. There was no acceptable sacrifice except Jesus. And the kingdom is here. And in this, God is taking control. Those things that have shifted his creation away from his desire, separated creation from himself, he is dealing with. He deals with life, death. So don't get me wrong about that John 3.16, right? Everlasting life is awesome. It's just not the whole story. But it certainly is part of the story. St. Paul, writing to a different church in Corinth, says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
He solved the problem. He came to set it right. Christ has conquered death and through him we have nothing to fear of death ourselves. That's the big threat of Satan. That he can take your life. And that's a real threat. Like think of those that are demon possessed in scripture. They're cutting themselves, right? They're, they're, they're oriented toward death. They're, they're living in graveyards and stuff. That's a real threat. But for a citizen of the kingdom, although the machinations of Satan may lead to your death, it can never steal your life. That is provided through Jesus Christ. He has, he has taken that threat away. Sometimes this concept is difficult for us because there's an already and not yet element to, Jesus, to that salvation, to being saved from death. So you are already saved. As you sit as a follower of Christ, you are saved. But it will come to fruition at not only your earthly death, but the eventual return of Jesus at the final restoration of all things. It's already, but not yet. It's, an, it's both, already and not yet. So there's a portion to that, but Jesus has set it right. The presence of sin brought the reality of death, and it is through Jesus that both are conquered. The kingdom is here. God is taking control. This is what Jesus is praying for. Let it come. When God jumps back into his creation... Finally, Satan is bound. Oh, Satan is bound. Revelation 12. Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So just before this part in Revelation 12, we're told of a woman about to give birth to a male child who is to rule all nations. Next year. And the truth is, we don't have time to unpack Revelation 12 uh, this morning. But here's what you need to know. That child was Jesus. Okay? And his presence on earth, his birth, death, resurrection, part of the revelation of the kingdom, had major implications to the existence of Satan. It was his life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that caused Satan to be cast from heaven. No longer to petition the throne of God and speak ill of his people in his presence. I know, I know. It all happened before the world began. I I need you to move that to the maybe column. I need you to be open to the fact that that did not happen that way. Because the way that the Bible talks about the kingdom coming, and the way that the Bible talks about it being established, and it puts orients it in the same place as Christ's kingdom coming, and Satan being thrown out and no longer to petition God anymore, I need you to move that to the maybe column. Okay? It was the life death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus that does these things. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that caused Satan to be cast from heaven. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that took the worst thing in Satan's arsenal, the threat of death, and robbed it of all its power. It's gone. You see, this is in the lives of those that were martyred at that time and also those that are martyred in our day. Remember what it said in the verses we just read. Satan was conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the lives of those who died for the cause of the kingdom. The very thing that is his greatest threat to us is that which ultimately destroys him. That is beautiful. That's beautiful. But that happened on the cross. 
is when that was taken away. Eschatology messed with number two. Satan is bound. Satan is bound, and Jesus and his kingdom are a plundering. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that binds Satan. I know, right? We think that it happens way in the past, right? Way more time, and then some sort of, uh, something happens, and everybody comes, and then he's bound in another thousand years. Okay, I get it. But here's the thing. If you look at the consequences of what happened on the cross, Jesus comes, and he brings this circumstance where Satan is cast out of heaven, no longer to blasphemy the brothers at the throne of God. And he is no longer able to threaten you with the very thing that he had power over before. Death is no longer capable. How is that not a binding? He's bound. He's not, he's not gone. That is the second coming. But he is most certainly bound. And the... We'll get to that. He's bound. <laughs> he is cast out of heaven and his power is diminished. It's not completely but it's diminished. Fettered. Okay? Shackles. That's the word that it uses. There was a demon-possessed guy who was blind and mute and is brought to Jesus and he's healed. Here's the reaction from that. Matthew 12, it says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? That's a pretty big burn, by the way. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, fettered, same word, then indeed he may plunder his house. First, let's not miss it, Jesus, when he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's a kingdom right here, right now statement. That's not a future item. He is casting out demons by the Spirit of God. But his main point is Jesus is not Satan. But he's still entering his house anyway. He has bound Satan and began to plunder his goods. People. He wants his people back. Jesus is God in the flesh, come on earth to reclaim his creation. To snatch lives away from the lies and influence of Satan and to bring them into his kingdom. There's a fleeting moment where Peter, one of Jesus' followers, and I say fleeting because Peter doesn't often get it right, receives clearly and proclaims that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one that God promised. It's bringing in the kingdom. And Jesus reacts and says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Where do you put a gate? It's outside your house, right? It's a line of defense. Jesus is on the offensive. He's on earth, kingdom coming on the offense. He will not be stopped by the protective, defensive gates of hell. Satan's bound. One of the answers to Jesus' prayer, the prayer that God's kingdom come and his will be done, is in the man, the body, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is through his sacrifice that God is putting things right. He's taking control. There remains a sense of already and not yet here, definitely. Right? It's, there's still work to be done. We're still in that process. And the entire work will not be completed until Jesus returns for a second and final time. But this arrival of the kingdom, one that is not established at any one time, but is constantly establishing, happens because of Jesus. Before we move past this, I want to touch on something very quickly. One of the mistakes we can make is taking this, this kingdom concept and pushing it 
It's kind of what we're talking about. Making it sound like it's, it's far off and it's yet to come. And to be honest, we have to like twist Scripture. But if we can do it, it does take some responsibility off us to actually have a reaction to the things that Jesus is saying and doing. Let's look back at that Daniel 7 verse. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Let's stop right there. Where's Jesus coming from and going to? So we usually look at this verse, and it could be a couple things in people's minds. It could be, this is our, this is our rapture verse, right? This is when he's coming, coming back, get everybody. Okay? Or this is the end. Okay? But look at the direction. He's coming on the clouds. He's going to the ancient of days. That's God. Coming from earth to heaven. Not the other way around. If this is, if this is one of the references we have to believe some of the things that we believe about the end of the world, that stuff into the maybe column. It's not the direction he's going. Notice what John and Jesus both say about the kingdom. Matthew 3.10. So uh, the, the Pharisees have, uh, John has said, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. And the Pharisees come up and he's like, who told you? You brood of vipers. That this coming wrath, to, to avoid the coming wrath. Okay? And, and John responds and says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice what John didn't say. You brood of vipers. Even after a long period of time, and then Jesus returns, and in a thousand years, and then he comes back, then the axe is laid at the root. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. John seems to believe that the kingdom is there. Matthew 6, 33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is offering the kingdom as if it can solve current problems. That's a pretty harsh thing for Jesus to say. You're worried about eating and drinking. There's a kingdom coming thousands of years from now that has nothing to do with you. Jesus seems to think the kingdom is now. What was our description in Daniel 7? He's given the kingdom when we see Jesus moving from heaven to earth. When did he do that? He ascended after he rose. That's not a a mythical thing that happened. It's the story of Jesus' life. It treats the kingdom as if that's when it's happening. Mark 1.15 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus seems to think that the kingdom is there. Right then. We need to understand how the actions of Jesus, the impact of the body of Christ, influence what we do today as we are the body of Christ. Jesus answers his prayer. He's part of the answer to what he's asking God for. That's not the whole answer. See, just as the body, this physical body sacrificed, the life of Christ was part of an answer to the Lord's prayer, to his own prayer. We are the second part of that answer. So we are part of God's redemptive story. We are his current body, Christ. And a part of that story, we are not only a recipient of its grace, we are a dealer in its truth. It's not a coincidence that the Lord's prayer is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. All of it is done. This greater, more fulfilled righteousness that we've been talking about. This is how it is all done. It's all baked into this kingdom concept. These are how these things are accomplished. Our submission is so that through our lives, people may get a glimpse of the character of God and see the reality of it demonstrated, just as Jesus did in his time. 
The reality of heaven coming to earth is that we join with the angels in heaven in serving the king in the realm that we're in. There is work to be done in heaven. The angels are doing God's bidding there. As his kingdom comes here, we have a responsibility. There is work to be done there in service to the king. We talked about this verse a little bit last week in Matthew 7. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Who does the will of my father who is in heaven. This is why there's no such thing as lip service in the kingdom of God. There's no such thing as pray a prayer, raise a hand, dunk the head, and you're in. There's too much at stake. The kingdom is coming. God is looking for people who are giving up everything, all allegiances to the will of God and the work of King Jesus. God has stepped into his creation to redeem it, and his kingdom will tear through the gates of hell to make that happen. He wants good news proclaimed to the poor. He wants to bind up the brokenhearted. He wants freedom proclaimed to the captives and the prisoners released from darkness. And that redemptive work is too important for him to play games with false commitments and half measures, placating prayers and shallow trust. There's a bigger picture, a much grander story. We cannot simply accept our own redemption and then wait things out as if God doesn't care about the rest of the world. See, God's love, God's grace, Jesus' sacrifice, that was... That was delivered to you. So then what right do we have to look at the rest of the world and call it wretched? And pray that God return quickly so that this world may pass. Was I not wretched? Dead in my trespasses like the rest of mankind? In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked the following. says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If I want to love my neighbor as myself, I will pray that time will extend. That my neighbor may know Jesus the way I know him. Because he does not today. The mercies of God are new every morning. And I'm thankful that of those mornings, the one that brought the truth of God into my life was allowed to come to pass. I will not pray a morning of God's mercy from under the feet of another man for respite from a world that is in need of restoration. What do I want out of here for? I'm afraid I'm going to die. Taken care of. Consequence of sin, taken care of. The kingdom of God has given us the opportunity to influence both. And we need to take it. The apostle Paul is faced with a very similar circumstance. It's not wrong to say, I want to be with Jesus. Yeah, I do. I do. But our friend Paul is struggling with this exact same thing that we're talking about. There's still work to be done. Uh, he wrote this in a, a letter to the church at Caesar Philippi. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Because of my coming to you again. Oh yes, like Paul, we can eagerly await the day Jesus returns. But even as that day tarries, his kingdom is still here as it has been. And it is still active and moving. And we are citizens of that kingdom right now. And citizens of the kingdom don't duck and cover and wait it out till Jesus comes. And citizens of the kingdom don't separate themselves from a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. The good news of the kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom extend the grace that has been shown to them, to those that are not part of the kingdom, so that they may see. Citizens of the kingdom follow Jesus. 
We do the things he did. We hang out with the people he hung out with. We go where he went because he's the king. He's the king of our kingdom. Like the king, active and moving boldly with the help of this Holy Spirit. And our lives will change because of it. We are the other part of the answer to the Lord's prayer. That's why we're still praying it. If it was just Jesus, he, 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 he did. He's done. He made it happen. He left it for us because it's still part of our life. It's still part of our world. The kingdom is still establishing. Jesus has us pray that we may know that what he has done and what is yet to be done that is in our hands. We are part of a continuing establishment of the kingdom. There are no sidelines. There is no tomorrow. It is here and it is now. And that is a that we have to contend with. It has a consequence in your life. Which brings us to what Jesus says right after the Lord's Prayer. And it concerns forgiveness. Matthew 16, or excuse me, 6, 14 to 15. For you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'll tell you this week, I was praying over this one, and I really wanted to wrestle with it, theologically. We're going to understand how this works. What if, I mean, he's going to stop forgiving me, that, that my salvation is done, I, I can't be saved because I'm not forgiving other people. Is that what it means? Or is it just an instance where uh, it's restoring a relationship with God that, that doesn't mean that I'm not part of the kingdom. It just means that our relationship is a bit severed. That's where most people land on that. And I prayed on it, and I thought about it, and I said, that is an unnecessary distinction. What am I going to do? Carve out some sort of reality that says, well, it's not going to throw me out of the kingdom, but I don't have to do what he tells me to do, and I don't need to reconcile with my brother, and I can just kind of be at odds with God in this matter. I don't know. You've met God, right? Does that make any sense? No. There's a lot of pages, a lot of ink spilt on this particular problem. We forgive. We forgive in the kingdom. Forgiveness undergirds this entire story. The thing God is trying to restore needed forgiveness. The reason Jesus came, your ability to be part of kingdom living, all of it is rooted in forgiveness because without that, there's no kingdom for us to participate in. We're not allowed in. Forgiveness is not a fair deal or a compromise. It's, biblical forgiveness is outrageous. It is outrageous. It's not fair. It's a wronged party choosing to incur the cost of justice upon themselves, to forget the wrong that was done against them, and to restore the relationship and standing between themselves and the offender as if the offense never took place. That is never fair, ever. But it's what we're called to And if we can't understand the radical forgiveness that God is calling us to, then we do not understand the radical forgiveness that we've been given. You would misunderstand yourself and God in that conversation. So as we we leave with with this notion that says we are part of the answer to God's prayer, we can understand that what undergirds all of that is forgiveness. And if we miss it, we miss everything. It opens up your heart for absolutely everything in the kingdom of God has going on. But if you're willing to block that, you're not going to accomplish anything. Now, God will move on. It's not like he's not capable, right? The nature of him inserting himself into the world is that he'll do as he pleases. But you've been invited into the work of a gracious king as his kingdom expands. Forgiveness for those around us helps us to see them correctly. Helps us to orient our lives with theirs and share that with them as part of this kingdom moving. That's awesome. That is an awesome deal. God has invited us into something very, very special. But we, just like we talked last week, you got to know what you're dealing with. When you pray that prayer, 
when you ask for what you're asking for. You've got to recognize what you're asking for. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these words. They're hard for me. Help me to see people the way you see them. Give me the energy. Give me the boldness, the direction to further your kingdom. To set captives free, to bring light into darkness. So much joy in, in my life. The things that you've brought. Help me to be a part of your story as we move forward. Help all of us to do that. It's rooted in you. None of this happens without Jesus. That's the truth. But it's so cool that you've involved yourself with your creation to the extent that we get to be a part of that kingdom growing. And that's a significant blessing. Help us to see it rightly. Give us energy for the task. In your heavenly name I pray. Amen.